This world that we live in entices us with its ability to read our minds and to know what we want. It does that one way with our phones. You realize that, don't you? Uh, I didn't realize till not long ago that, that our phones actually listen to us, not just us listening to them. But you type something in there, and it's going to remind you of someone that has what you're looking for and you want. You say that's not insidious or whatever. No, in a way it is. Because in the world that we live in, they see us not as a person, not as a child of God, not even as, as an individual with worth because we're made in the image of God, but they see us as a consumer. They know you've got money in your pocket and they want it. The bad thing is that's not so bad, but it can get much worse. And they find out a lot about us and they take our weaknesses and they exploit them. Now, whether your weakness is chocolate or taking vacations, they're going to find you and do that. The reality is in consuming, we become victim to that in so many ways. They're watching us. Now, there are other ways that the world watches us. And when I say the world, I'm not talking about the, the people that are running the, the machine uh, that produces and sells. I'm talking about the world that is led by none other than the evil one, Satan. That world watches us. The God of this world, he is called by Jesus himself, watches us carefully. He desires to destroy us. He wants to destroy our witness and our work and our very lives if he can. He's our enemy. Oldest book of the Bible tells the story of how Satan watches those that God loves and cherishes. Job was a righteous man, a better man than any of us, yet God allowed him to test him. Simon Peter was one faithful who followed the Lord and did slip up. He was, he was faulty and he failed just like we do. But yet when Satan requested to tempt him, or as, as, as Jesus described it, he's desired to sift you as you would sift wheat. Jesus didn't say, no, you're not touching him. He said, I'm praying for you, Simon Peter. I, I've got to say that I've got to see the eyes of St. Peter when Jesus said that bugging out and sh literally shock. Because we are all tested at some time or the other. Satan will test us, and we must draw close to our Lord. So I want to remind you that there's a world waiting for us, and it's not a good world, to destroy us. Destroy our faith and our faithfulness, to take away our witness, to weaken us, spiritually speaking, to, to cause us to fail, falter, and fall. But that's what that is all about. Today we, we look at the battle we fight with the world around us, and in the spiritual battle that we are in, the world is after us, often. This world appeals to our flesh or rather to our sinful nature. Here's the problem. Many Christians are caught up in this world. We have to be careful about that. We, uh, in, in, in theological terms, we, we refer to that as the Demas syndrome, D-E-M-A-S, the Demas syndrome. And, and you may say, what is that, preacher? I've never heard of that before. Well, it's real simple. The Apostle Paul was in prison, and he was needing some help, and he talked about those that he called on to help him. And in the last letter that he wrote before he died, the letter to Timothy, 
the last thing he wrote in there at the end of it was this in, in 2 Timothy 4, 9, and 10. He said, make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The Demas syndrome is when you get your eyes on the world and off the Lord and you go after the world. It's when you forget about what God has called you to do and forgot, forget that he is preserving and protecting you and you get enticed by the allurements of the world. That can happen to all of us. It can happen occasionally or it can happen constantly. But it's always fatal if we follow it through. In Richmond, Vermont, there is a, a place called the Huntington River Gorge. And it's where a river uh, literally drops over a falls and there's a beautiful, almost uh, idyllic pond that's created there. It attracts many people to go swimming in it. Usually young folks in their 20s and 30s go out there and they think, oh, this is gorgeous and it's got to be fine, everything will be okay. But what they don't realize is just below the surface, about 12 to 18 inches below the surface of the water, there's a very, very strong current. It is said that 20-plus that persons have died there in the last 10 years. People look at it and they think that's fine and everything's okay, but they don't realize underneath there are these treacherous uh, whirlpools and, and the waterfalls push the water through even though the top is, is so, so perfect. Public safety officials put signs everywhere. All around that property there are warning signs to stay away from there. Yet it still attracts people every year and young people die there. We do the same thing in life sometimes. We're attracted by things in this world. We're enticed by them. And our sinful nature gives in many times. And, and we're pulled underneath the surface. It drags us along the rocks and destroys us. The Bible has placed warning signs for many Christians all about us in the world. Yet we get attracted to the things that the world draws us to. John is writing to believers in this. I'll remind you of that. He's not talking to lost folks. He said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And that, the word for love there doesn't mean just have them and use them, but it means get attracted in such a way that you're drawn to them passionately, and they become a part of you. And that is so dangerous. Now, the word world that's used there is a Greek word that is cosmos, uh, cosmology. It, 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 it's a word that means more than, than just human order of the universe. It means so much more than the cosmos, as we would say. It means that which is there that would draw us away. That which is shiny and beautiful. Not just the physical world, but the things that we would be attracted to and drawn to. It also means the moral world. It gets into the fiber of us and pulls us away from what we know is right and wrong. I'll tell you how bad it is. It's this bad that the divorce rate in the world is the same in the church. It is said that in the church we have the same struggles with the different temptations of life and therefore bankruptcy rates for people who overspend and in debt themselves is the same in the church as it is in the world. Certain crimes that are committed by those who get indebted and, and need money to survive are the same in the, same in the church as it is in the world. It's a terrifying thing. John 14 says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing to do with me. 
Jesus let us know that Satan is in control. But we say, you know, I, I live for the Lord, not for him. Yet you live in the world, and you have those struggles. We're told not to love this world, but there are things in this world that are so opposed to God that we have to be careful with them. This world competes for our love, and, and God alone wants our love. And, and, and what we need to remember is the, in the last verse that I read to you, verse 15 in 1 John 2, it says, The love of the Father is not in him. Does not mean that, that God just doesn't like you because you go after these things. It means that you have walked away from him. You have chosen rather to follow after the things of the world. Here's what's amazing. We can, we can read this and understand how it begins. It may begin with us. It, it may be the acknowledgement of God watching us and warning us, but we fall into that pit. If we love the world, then, then we don't love God. And, and if, if the love of the world is there, God's love can't be there. We, we can't hold tightly onto the things of this world. They will not last for us. As the old country preacher said one time, I've never seen a hearse with a towing hitch on the back. Shane, y'all don't have towing hitches on the back of your hearse there at Selma Funeral Home, do you? No, sir. We don't take it with us. We can't hold on to it. The things of this world do not matter. When we get near the end and we see the glimmering hope that's ahead of us, we lose sight of things here in this world. They don't matter anymore. We've got to realize that the choices we make in this life determine what we become. We cannot have it both ways. You can't have the things of this world and become wrapped up in them and then have the things of God. You simply can't do it. Matthew 6, 24 said, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And it says this so plainly. You cannot serve both God and possessions. You can't do that. This is nothing new. In the Ten Commandments, the first commandment was very plain. It's one of the hardest ones for people to understand, though. It says, the Lord your God is a jealous God and he'll have no other gods before him. He will not share you with anybody. He doesn't want a piece or a part of you. He wants all of you because he made you. God loves us that way. James 4.4 4 says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? You can't do that. We can't let the things of this world entwine us in such a way that our reputation goes away and lives with the world rather than living with Christ. Your faith and your faithfulness and your calling is more significant than anything this world will ever give you. I remind you that when an obituary is written, it may have the listing of all the great things and accomplishments that you've had in life, uh, your educational prowess, your your ability in your career field, uh, you're setting yourself apart in, in certain functions in society and your sacrifices that you give to certain organizations. And all those things are good. But 
all of those together, weighed together as one thing, will never get you one inch closer to heaven. Heaven is not about church membership. It's not even about baptism. It's not about what you read in Scripture. It's about a relationship. That's all. And When God looks at you, what does He say? Does He say, I see the blood of my Son on them covering their sins, and therefore I love them, I will bless them, I'll give them my Holy Spirit, I will guide them through this life, I'll have a plan for them in eternity? Or one day will He look at us and say, Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. You can be very active in church and do a lot of good things in church. You can help bring children and young adults and median adults, and senior adults to faith in Christ and and help disciple them. You can do that and still be lost. You see, the power in God's Word is not that I read it. The power is the fact that God has endued it with His power. When this Word is read, there's power there. So therefore, this Word can be handled by someone that's not a believer. It can be assimilated to you And the Holy Spirit will change your life. Therefore, I say, just because you're in church does not mean you're of Christ. It's a personal relationship. It is so very important to do that. One of the great preachers of an earlier time made the comment to a man in his church one day, who said, I don't know why you always preach on this thing about temptation. I don't know why you always preach on this thing about about discouragement and how you struggle in spiritual warfare with the evil one. He said, I've never had Satan bother me once. It was found out later there was a reason. He belonged to Satan. He didn't belong to Christ. He fell away and walked away from it all and left it because there was no redeeming attachment within his soul. So sitting in church does not make you a Christian. Reading God's Word does not make you a Christian. Hanging around here all your life does not make you a Christian. It's important that you have that personal relationship that changes you. Changes you constantly. You have the same temptations today that you had 10 years ago. Something's wrong in your life. If you're stumbling over the same sins and you can't seem to get victory over them, there's a reason. Maybe you can't say, greater is he that is within me than he that is within the world. Because the world may have control of you. Do you know why I believe most people who are in the church that never accept Christ die and go to hell? One simple reason, pride. They get in the church and they hold a position or they become someone that's regarded as significant and they're too proud to admit that they're not a Christian. They're afraid of what it will do. I heard a man one time said, well, if, if, if I stood up and walked the aisle and gave my heart to Jesus... What would all those little kids that I taught in Sunday school say? What would would my circle of friends say about me? Oh, dear friend, don't go to hell because you're afraid of what somebody might think. In fact, 
is one man many years ago at Second Baptist Church in Atlanta walked the aisle. And he was crying, and he said this to the pastor. He says, I know this is a shock to all of you, but he said, I'm lost. And the pastor confided later and said, it wasn't a shock to any of us, just to him. Because as we watched his life, it didn't line up with Scripture. You see, the Holy Spirit within you should make you more compassionate, more loving, and more giving. The Holy Spirit should guide you away from those sins that you would trip over. There are three things that are listed here that are so powerful, so very powerful. It said three things that are deadly. It says the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father but of the world. The lust of the flesh is simply the cravings of sinful man. It might be any craving from from a relationship that was untoward that you shouldn't go after to turkey and dressing, that second helping you might want to eat Thanksgiving afternoon. The lust of the flesh can draw you in many ways. It might be an outfit that you think you'd be perfect in. It might be an automobile that you should buy. It might be that pool that you wanted to put in your backyard. Who knows what it might be? It's something that you're attracted to as you look and you think about the difference it would make in your life. You know, here's the problem with the world. When, when I took the first psychology course at, at Mercer University, uh, they taught us a little phrase there that, uh, that's in the Latin, tabula rasa. It means blank slate. And it's the idea in, in, among psychiatrists and psychologists that we begin life with a blank slate. Everything's clean and clear, and we come into the world, and we're just perfect and wonderful, and, and everything is added to that good and bad and indifferent from that point forward. And it's a beautiful idea. It's just not true. Because remember, we're born in sin. We all fell in our original father and mother, Adam and Eve. Our nature when we're born is a sin nature. It's a sin nature. And therefore, nobody has to teach us how to sin. We, we do a good job of it. I, you know, and, and I remind you that when a, when a baby is born, at that point, their brain is larger than it, compared to their body than ever because their body will grow, the, the brain will stay that size. And they're very intelligent. That little infant that you absolutely adore and love and you look at and you just get all starry-eyed and grandparents will do all kinds of crazy things for their grandkids, that child is very intelligent. The first thing that that child will ever teach you is how to play fetch. They will knock that uh, spoon or, or that cup or, or, or that teething ring off of, of the little shelf in front of them that they eat on beside your table. And you'll pick it up quickly and they'll laugh. They'll say, wow, this is fun. They'll throw it over again and you'll do it again just like a dog fetching a bone. You do it. We all do it. And at that moment, in their starry little eyes, their brain figures something out. I can control them. And they do. Amen? Go ahead and admit it. We've all done that. And, and it doesn't stop there. It gets worse when they get to middle school and high school and, oh my goodness, college. I don't even want to go there. We've got to understand that we're not born perfect. We're born in sin. And we need to be redeemed. And the lust of the flesh will go after all of us. It's our nature. We're people of sin. 
the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Lust of eyes is coveting. What a, what a, a, a horrible sin we have. The tenth commandment was coveting. Don't covet what is your neighbor's. Don't covet what belongs to others. Don't desire those things. It, it happened in the garden. Eve looked at the tree that she was not supposed to look at. And you know what her first problem was? She kept looking. She kept looking. Things are enticing. They're powerful. I tell you, 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 you have to be careful. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my buddy Mark Kelly up there in the balcony, and I had a discussion with him yesterday about the sweetest woman I've ever known, Myrtle Kelly, who's up in heaven right now. That woman can make the best chocolate pie I've ever eaten. And, and one pie was not enough. I, I remember one time Mark, uh, Myrtle made me a pie, and, and Mark was to bring it over to my house because I forgot it here at church, and Mark brought it to my house. You remember that? And I wasn't there. I'd gone to eat with some, some church folks. And so Mark took it back to his house, and he said, I'll take it back later. And then you looked at it, and half a pie made it back to my house. And it was good. It was, it was always good. And we, we, you know, like Mark told me yesterday, he said, I, I, the other day I thought about making one of those pies, but I knew it wouldn't be as good as my mom's. You know, here's what's amazing. We get attached to things like that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Because I've got a feeling if there's a kitchen in heaven, she's going to make us a pie when we get up there. But we have to be careful in this world in what we look at and what we want and what we let absorb in our lives to covet and to desire. We have to be careful about that. Because that can so obsess us that, that, that we feel like we, we never have enough. Malcolm Forbes was, Forbes was once quoted saying, He who dies with the most toys wins. And a preacher who was a pundit in New York City responded this way, he said, but he who dies with the most toys still dies. It doesn't really matter. You don't win anything when you die with a lot of toys. Mark 8.36 tells us, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his own soul? And I agree with that. And we need to understand the importance of that. Because in this battle that we go through of the flesh, where we're struggling with ourselves, not with a stranger, not with the evil one far away, but with ourselves within, with our own desires, it's a tough battle. I've told you many times before, the most evil thing created for a child when I was growing up was what we affectionately call the wish book. It was, it was the one book that Sears and Roebuck put out, and J.C. Penney too, I'll give them credit, that, that kids absolutely wore out. I, Laurie, I don't know if you did it, because I don't know how your mom and dad responded, but we would circle what we wanted in there, even put our name beside there in case there was any confusion. We would sometimes tear the pages out and leave them around appropriate ways. That whole Santa Claus thing, we knew who Santa Claus was. We knew. And, and we learned to wish... If we didn't get it on Sunday mornings, and our friend did, I guarantee you, if we cried enough and fussed enough, by New Year's Day we'd have it. We learned to covet early on. The last that's mentioned here is the boastful pride of life. And that's a scary one. 
Because in the world that we live in, sometimes we can get caught up with ourselves and who we are. We can think that it's the things that we have accumulated in life that really matter. And it's not. I've told you before, the, the most important light in your house is not the chandelier in the entry foyer. It's not certainly the beautiful light that's over your dining room table. It's that little bitty night light in the wall that gets you from your bedside to your bathroom safely that's the most important. And as you get older, you understand the importance of that. You learn that the pride of life is dangerous because if you really believe all those things that people are telling you about yourself and you think they're being honest, you're in trouble. Because none of us are really that great. I had the privilege of growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, and, and we had many friends there. My mother's family went all the way back to the founding of Atlanta. And one of her good friends growing up, they played with in, in the dirt street on which they lived. They went to school together. Ended up marrying a man who worked in a, in a, in a cotton mill there, but they produced a son that became eventually the, the governor of Georgia. And my mother and that lady ended their life together side by side in a nursing home. And thankfully, they both remembered one another and loved one another. But that, that woman's son I grew up around, his name was Lester Maddox, and he was a strange little character, but boy, you couldn't find a better politician. He could, he could work a room, you know, better than, well, Johnny's not here, but he could work a room. And I can remember sitting with them in the varsity, which was a, a fancy hot dog stand that would seat how many people, Jeff, probably 3,000, big place, across from Georgia Tech, on Sunday nights, and Governor Maddox was then governor, and he would say this. People would come up, and they'd say, we are so blessed to have you. You're a wonderful governor. And he'd say, and I love this, he'd say, I'm a sinner saved by grace, and I'm still a sinner, so pray for me. He got cancer and died with it. He died right before his mother died, and I remember talking to him about that in the nursing home one day, and he said, Jerry, he said, don't ever forget that when we all die, our soul goes somewhere in eternity and our body returns to dust. And he said, send things to heaven. Don't leave things here on earth. And that always stuck with me. Because sometimes we want to leave the monuments that are here on earth. And monuments don't matter. Monuments are insignificant. You know, Matthew 24 really sums it up this way. It says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. What a powerful verse. It's on D.L. Moody's tombstone. Because he understood the importance of living our life in such a way that others would see us and be changed. Not their opinion, not their lifestyle, not the things that they have. But they would be changed within. That they'd come closer to their Savior. That they'd give thanks. That they understand that Jesus died for them that they'd understand that the only thing you can take to heaven with you are the good works that you do or those who you bring to Christ. That's what really matters. And I pray that today you would understand the importance in your battle, in your spiritual warfare with the evil one, that you would not let the world work its way into your heart 
but you would make sure that your heart is firmly seated with Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the love that you've given us and the blessings of our life. We thank you for your word that convicts and convinces us of truth and changes us. And I pray right now if there's someone here within the sound of my voice that in their life they've struggled with temptation and sometimes they've given in and they need help and hope to move beyond that. I pray that this would be a time that they'd lift their heart to you in prayer and seek your guidance to do that which is correct. Victory over temptation is so important to all of us. And Lord, if there's one here that needs to come and join this church or to come forward and make a public statement of faith or, or to be baptized, Father, speak to them now and may they say yes. Lord, allow us to be faithful to you even in this time. And as this invitation hymn is sung, may we be as honest with you as we can be. And may we say yes when your spirit calls. For it's in your holy name we do pray. Amen.